And in the last three weeks, we've seen Jesus as the great teacher and preacher as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, and we've examined the way that he talked about the kingdom through the Beatitudes and salt and light and last week through the law. And so this, this, this week on the last Sunday in the Epiphany season, I want us to see a different picture of Jesus. One that during his earthly ministries, we've already noted that not a lot of people saw, only a handful of people got to see this, and that is Jesus in his glory as the only begotten Son of God. Upon a high mountain in a time of prayer and preparation for his coming experience on the cross, Jesus is transformed before his closest disciples. Like, it is that scene that we turn our attention to this morning. Because I believe there are three things that Jesus wants us to show us about his transformation. So this morning is going to be a little different. We're going to spend a significant time on the first point, uh, which is the main point, and then we're going to spend a little shorter time on the last two. And I only say that to prepare you. So when the main point goes long, don't think, man, we're never getting out of here, okay? The second two will be briefer. It is the main point that is important, and the other two will support it, as you'll see. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to Matthew 17, uh, beginning at verse 1. And if you don't have them, we will have it on the screen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so there's our scene. Uh, it's kind of an amazing scene. If you think about it in, in terms of pictures and movies, like Jesus goes up on the mountain with his closest disciples and like Moses and Elijah show up and he's transfigured and he's shining. And it's like, it's this wonderful scene. And as we look at the other synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew and, and uh, Mark and Luke, we see a few more details that I wanted to give us up front that kind of clarify the scene. Where Matthew says his clothes became white as light, Mark tells us he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so he gives us a little detail on what is happening. I mean, his clothes are so white that it would be impossible to get that white in any earthly means, right? Like it's, it's shining. Where Matthew tells us that he led them up on a high mountain and was transfigured before them, Luke fills in the details when he says more detail about what happened, but two, why it happened. He was praying on the mountain. All three record Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus, but Luke lets us in on the subject, and we'll talk about that in a minute, what they are discussing. All three record Peter's statement, but Mark and Luke give us some insight on why he said it. Mark says it's because he didn't know what to say. <laughs> I love that. He said, Mark says, Peter said it, but he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. But what's even better is that the way that Luke, uh, uh, Luke says it. Luke says, 
Peter said this not knowing what he said, right? Like Peter is just, he doesn't know what to do, right? Like he is confronted with the reality that this Jesus is, is in his glory and he's, he's like, he's shining in like the sun and then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are there and Peter doesn't know what to do. And so he just starts talking because that's what Peter does, right? But all of these little details paint for us a picture of Jesus being transfigured or transformed before the very eyes of the disciples as he prayed. A picture of the great prophets Moses and Elijah appearing with him in this glorious display of who he was, of terrified disciples and a babbling Peter, and finally God the Father appearing in the glory cloud and pronouncing for a second time, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This scene, in this scene we see three very important things. The first is this. In his transfiguration, Jesus shows us the supremacy of the Son. And so if you're taking notes, that's the first one. We'll leave that up there for a minute. Jesus, in his transfiguration, shows us the supremacy of the Son. Of all the pictures, I want you to think about this, of Jesus in his earthly ministry, as a healer, as a teacher, as a miracle worker, as someone who walked on water and calmed the storms, like this is Jesus, this is the closest the disciples got to see Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory. Like this moment is the closest for them to see Jesus as he really is. Like transfigured before them, shining bright. This is who Jesus was. This is the son of God. They had confessed it, but now they see it. So during this intimate time of prayer, Jesus allows the veil to drop and these three disciples see him for who he is as he converses with these great giants and heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. During my early parts of this study, I was driving with the family, and I just asked Brittany, I said, you know, there's a question that bothered me, and maybe I like to ask them questions that I know they don't know either, so we can all be stumped together. Uh, so I said, Brittany and Lily, and we're driving, and I said, why Moses and Elijah, right? Why not Abraham, uh, the father of the faith? Why not David? Right? The man after God's own heart, the giant slayer. Like, why not the King David? Why not Solomon? Like, the wisest man that was ever, like, why Moses and Elijah? Like, and so, of course, we were all stumped. Uh, no one had the answer. I was really hoping that Brittany would have it, but she didn't. Of all the significant figures in Hebrews textures, why, why these two men? And, of course, the scripture doesn't tell us plainly. But there's a popular theory that I agree with is that Moses represents the Jewish law and Elijah represents the Jewish prophets. On the shoulders of these two men stand all of the Jewish scriptures. This is a visual picture of what Jesus said earlier when he says all of it is summed up in the law and the prophets, right? Moses representing the first five books of the law of God's covenant of from creation to calling uh, to, of Abraham to the establishment of Israel uh, to giving of the law and the covenant with his people. Like Moses represents all of that. And then Elijah, the prophet, representing everything that happens after that where God is calling his people back to the covenant, right? These two men represent... All that God has done. Jesus said in Matthew 5, we saw last week, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? That is, I am continuing what God started. And now we see a visual picture of that with Moses and Elijah standing on the mountain with Jesus. And listen, if that is true, if our understanding of that, why these men are there is true, then the appearance of of Moses and Elijah is significant for a number of reasons. 
The first is what they represent in God's redemptive plan. Like if Moses represents the law, God delivering his people from Egypt and making the nation of Israel his people, drawing them to himself and covenanting together with them to be their God and they his people. If that's what he represents, then there's a big picture there of coveting together with his people, of redeeming his people, delivering them. If Elijah represents the prophets, God continually speaking to his people, calling them back to himself, back to their covenant, back to right relationship with him, as well as speaking on God's behalf about his future work, where he promises he will make for himself a new people, establish a new covenant, and redeem his people in a new way. If those are true, then these men represent everything God had done so far, right? From the very bit of creation, Genesis 1, to the end of the New Testament, the prophet, then every one of these things is kind of represented here. This is the totality of what God has done so far in enacting his redemptive plan. He had revealed himself to the nation of Israel. He had chosen them to be a special people, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He had consistently been faithful in spite of their unfaithfulness. He had told them there was coming a time when he would complete his redemptive plan and his purposes would be accomplished, right? And so in this picture of all that, now listen, Peter certainly didn't get it in this moment. Like, we know that. But eventually he would get this. After the resurrection and after the ascension, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. You remember that story? And they see the lame man. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have. And he heals him in Jesus' name. And the people are astounded and they're following him. And, and he gets them together and he says, listen, or don't be amazed. This was because of Jesus. And he launches into a sermon right then and there in the temple. And this is what he says. This is how I know he gets it. God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. He proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. Like Jesus is the greater prophet that Moses told about. Jesus is the greater prophet that, that all of the prophets spoke of. The time has come. Jesus is it. Like this is the fulfillment of what God has been doing. This is the greater prophet Moses foretold. Like Jesus is the greater Moses because he is the son of God, right? Moses was a great prophet, a hero of the faith. You ask a, uh, anybody familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, like who the hero is, and Moses is certainly up there, right? But Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Elijah was a man of God, right? Like he was a great prophet, but ultimately Jesus is greater. This is the whole argument the author of Hebrew makes in chapter 3 of Hebrews. He says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The author says Moses was faithful as a servant, as a slave, and he, he certainly deserves glory, but Jesus is faithful as the son, right? He's higher than Moses, greater than Moses. 
the supremacy of the Son of God is, is the emphasis in all of that. And so here, we are supposed to see this Jesus standing here on the mountain as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that was involving Moses and Elijah. They merely participated in it, but Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Amen? That's what we see as Jesus is transfigured. The second significance of these two men is what they experienced in their own lives. Uh, why that's, I think it's important that it's Moses and Elijah. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but Luke, the one who loves adding details, he, he does tell us. He says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's such an interesting word used here. The word departure is the Greek word exodus. They spoke of his exodus, right? And so that, that should immediately send our minds back, right, to Moses and the exodus. Like this, they're not talking just about his death or his resurrection or his ascension, all, all that is included. They are speaking of his exodus. Now, as our mind goes back to Moses and the exodus of God's people, which is exactly what I think Matthew intended for it to do, we go back and we think about if Jesus is the greater Moses, then his exodus is the greater exodus. So let's, let's look at that picture for a second. God took people who were enslaved and captive of sin, right, delivered them in his own power out of that into freedom, made them a people who had not been a people, and then went with them as their God, okay? They experienced relationship and freedom in God. Christ, as the greater Moses with the greater Exodus, rescues people from sin and death and the consequence of rebellion, and he brings them out of that, giving them freedom and new life as he, they experience in him as their God and Savior. Amen? This is the greater exodus that was pictured for us in Exodus. God drawing a people out that are not a people, bring them out of bondage and slavery into the freedom. This is what God does, making rebels recipients, making those who are God's, under God's wrath as adopted children that can rightly call God their heavenly father. This is the greater exodus that Jesus accomplishes in just a short period of time. From this moment, transfigured, he'll come down the mountain, there'll be some ministry, and he is headed, but he is headed towards Jerusalem to the fulfillment of his ministry that made the exodus possible. When you think of Elijah, what do you think? What do, you, do you remember how Elijah departed from this world? Elijah didn't go quietly on, on a deathbed, or uh, he was walking with his protege, Elisha, and he kept trying to send Elisha away, and Elisha wouldn't go because he wanted to see what had happened. God had told that he was going to take Elijah, and we weren't, at that point, they weren't sure what that even meant. Was he going to die? What was going to happen? And this is what happens. As they still went on and talked, this is Elijah and Elisha. Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And he saw him no more. Like, that's quite the departure, right? Elijah goes from walking with Elisha to being carried into heaven to God's presence. Like that. Like, it, it, it's dramatic and it's powerful. The Bible says he was taken. In just a short amount of time, Jesus would, in the sight of his own disciples, himself ascend into heaven. Not taken, 
but he would go into heaven himself, right? There's a picture here, I think, that, that Matthew is trying to picture, paint for us, that ultimately the spirit that, that God is trying to tell us Jesus is the greater, right? The greater Moses, the greater prophet, like Jesus is the greater. Listen, Elijah seemingly escaped death, but Jesus would conquer it. Elijah went away without experiencing death. Jesus would go through it, right? He is the greater. That's the whole point of this, right? Do you see it? This Jesus on the mountain just shining like the sun, the glory that he has within, changing what is without, he's not reflecting it. This is his. That's why the, the sun is supreme. That, this is what we see in the transfiguration. Not only do these men show us the superior nature of the Son of God and God's redemptive plan, not only do we see the superior nature of the Son in his own experience, with his, the exodus he accomplishes and with his glorious departure, we see the Son is superior because God the Father says so. In this moment, God speaks. One of only two times in, this, in Matthew that God speaks audibly. As the two men are leaving, Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like, this might be one of my favorite moments of Peter's inability to not say something. Like, Peter's always the one, right? Like, remember the scene. Jesus has taken them high up on a mountain, and as he's praying, Luke tells us they're getting sleepy. Does that sound familiar? Like, Disciples, just whenever Jesus is praying, he prays along, and they get sleepy. It happens in the garden. This is the first time it's recorded. Luke says, Peter and those who are with him were heavy with sleep. Like they're, Jesus is praying, and they're falling asleep. But when they saw his glory, they became fully awake, and they saw two men standing with him. So Peter wakes up, kind of comes out of the fog of falling asleep. Jesus is shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah are with him all standing in a glorious display. And as Moses and Elijah are leaving, he blurts out, what if I build three tents? Like, what if, what if I build one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? It's ridiculous, but we, we, look, we understand a little bit. I think that's why the, the, the authors tell us that he didn't know what to say, that he, he didn't know what he was saying, because like, we've all been there, right? Like, he's overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, and he just, he just responds in, in some kind of way. But all three accounts tell us the same thing. While he was still forming the words, while they were still falling out of his mouth, mid-sentence, God the Father interrupts him. The glory cloud, like the, the, the same kind of cloud that used to descend on the tabernacle, like God's presence. The glory cloud descends, and Moses and Elijah are leaving. Uh, he blurts this out. The glory cloud ascends, and God speaks. And what does he say? The same thing he said at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But he adds something this time that stands out so much. Listen to him, right? This is the difference when you compare the two accounts. Jesus, God here says of Jesus, this is my son. I'm pleased with him, so listen to him. Listen, he and he alone is the one you must listen to. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the prophet that Moses told you about, that if you would not listen to them, you would be destroyed. There's no need for three tenths because Jesus is not equal to Moses and Elijah. He is greater. You're not going to build three tenths. You, you missed it, Peter, right? It's not Moses and Jesus and Elijah. It's Jesus only, right? That is what Peter learns on the mountain in the transfiguration. 
The whole scene stands as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and supreme over everything else. He possesses his own glory. He is not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the Son of God. And as the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Like, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, more excellent than theirs. This is what the disciples witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. They got a peek of who Jesus really was, right? Of the glory of the only Son of God. So this is the first thing we see, the supremacy of the Son. The second is, in his transfiguration, Jesus shows us the power of the cross. You don't have to look very hard to see the cross's prominent role in this encounter. It serves as bookends to this account. Immediately before, if you were to read back a few verses before this, Jesus is teaching about his impending suffering at the hands of elders and chief priests and scribes. That in Jerusalem he would be killed, on the third day he would be raised. Then you see the conversation during the transfiguration is what? About his departure in Jerusalem, which includes all of that. And then as he's coming down the mountain, what does Jesus say? As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man is put to death, buried, and raised again, not until I have accomplished my mission, not until I have finished my work. Right? So the cross, the crucifixion, the ascension, the, the burial, all of it kind of serves as bookends to the transfiguration. This is why it's important. Sometimes when we think about the cross, we think about Jesus beaten and bloody, crowned with thorns, which is inaccurate, right? It's an accurate and sober reminder of what he endured for our sakes. But what we might miss is the man on the cross is the same man we just saw standing in his glory, shining so bright that he was like the sun, talking to Moses and Elijah and God the Father declaring that this is his son. The power of the cross is made real when you realize who was on it. This was no ordinary man dying an undeserved death. This was no great religious teacher being put to death because his teachings were outside the norm. This is the very son of God on the cross. The transfiguration on the high mountain gives us clarity of Calvary on the hill. Amen? It is the height that we see Jesus elevated when we realize just what his death means. This was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, laying down his life for his people. The eternal son of God dying a finite death so we who are finite may experience everlasting life. This is what happens on Calvary. And the transfiguration, seeing Jesus for who he really is, is what makes the cross all the more beautiful. But it also reveals the great and effectual power of it. Paul says it best in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God? 
For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is through the death of the son that we can be saved from the wrath of God. It is by the blood of the son that we can be justified. It is by the body of Jesus Christ we can be reconciled. This Jesus who voluntarily went to the cross for all of God's elect, for all those who would believe, this Jesus is the son of God and that is what gives the cross. As that old song sang about the blood of Jesus, it's wonder working power. A lot of people died on a cross. A lot of people laid down their life for good causes, but that's not what this is. When we celebrate the supper, the body and the blood, this is the son of God laying down his life for men and women to be reconciled to himself. Don't miss that. The transfiguration is not just about the height of his glory, but the depth of his submission. The Bible says he had glory with the father and he was willing to empty himself of it and become a man and become obedient even to the point of death, even to the death of the cross, right? This is what we see here clearly in the transfiguration, the height that he had. So one, in the transfiguration, Jesus shows us the supremacy of the Son. There is no one like the Son of God. Second, he shows us the power of the cross. And then lastly and briefly, he shows us in his transfiguration, Jesus shows us the image of the disciples. Now, as you can imagine, this encounter forever impacted the disciples in ways we can't even fathom, right? Like what they saw and what they heard forever changed them. But thankfully for us, they wrote down some of the ways that it changed them. And that is where I want to finish our time together today. What did they say about this experience? How did it change them? What does it mean for us? There's two understandings the disciples got that day, having been on the mountain. Number one, they understood that they had beheld the glory of Jesus and that it had been veiled in flesh, and now they knew who he really was. The second is they had seen a foretaste of who, through the power of Jesus, the disciple will become, right? A disciple will become like his master. Having seen their master in his glory, they now know what a disciple will become. Listen, these, this comes from their own words. This is not something that I made up. This comes from their writings. This is what John says in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is John's testimony that he was on the mountain, that he saw the glory of God, or glory of Christ, as glory of the only son. First, uh, Second Peter that we read this morning, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. They both say, we saw his glory. Eyewitnesses, we saw it. That's the first understanding they got. They knew who Jesus was now, the glory that he had. Both John and Peter describe it, Peter specifically bringing up this moment. Even though they didn't quite understand everything in this moment, they could never look at Jesus at the same way. John would go on to write in one of his letters about the implications of beholding Jesus in this way. First John, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John knows from his own experience to see Jesus as he is, is an awesome thing. But in his own power, he was terrified and fell down on his face. But he says, when we see him as he is, as reconciled children of God, not only will we see him as he is, we will be like him, right? This is the hope that John says changes how we live our lives, knowing that one day we will be like him. We desire to be more and more like him now, every day. This is the trajectory of a disciple. There is coming a moment when they will stand face to face with Jesus, and because they have been reconciled and covered by the blood of Jesus, they will be transformed. They will be like him. This is the image of a disciple. And why does that matter, you say? because it sets the standard for the way we are to live. We're not just trying to live up to a great teacher, right? Or a great moral authority or a great miracle worker. We are looking at the very son of God in all of his glory going, that's what I want you to make me, God, right? Purify me, make me holy, set me apart. I wanna grow in the image of Christ. Not that I see as a great teacher, but that I see the very son of God, right? This is the trajectory of a Christian, anything less, is not Christianity. Anything less is not school. This is what Paul says, having his own encounter with the risen and glorified Lord. Remember on the road to Damascus, the bright light, the voice, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting, or why are you persecuting me? Who are you? And he identifies himself as Jesus. He writes about the implications of that, and I find this interesting. I'm going to put these two scriptures up here because they are the only other two places that the word transfigured is used in the Bible. Second Corinthians, Paul is writing. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now listen, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As beholding Jesus in his glory, we are being transformed more and more like him. And then again in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All of this reminds us to follow Jesus is to be transformed right? To be a disciple is to be transformed. It is to grow in our understanding of who he is. And as we do, and as we see him more and more clearly, we are changed more and more into his image by the power of the spirit. This is the trajectory of a believer's life. As I said a minute ago, our goal is not to become great teachers or great moral examples or great humanitarians, although none of that is bad. 
Our goal is to become more and more like Jesus. And it is the transfigure account, transfiguration account that shows us just what he looks like. Listen, and how desperately we need God's power to be transformed. This is not something you can accomplish in your own power. We might be tempted to look at Jesus when he's teaching or when he's healing and, and think that maybe somehow we could live that way. But when you see him in his full glory, glowing like the sun in radiant white, speaking to Moses and Elijah, being declared from heaven that he is the son and God is pleasing him, you know you will never get there in your own power. Amen? And we're not commanded to get there in our own power. We're told. Paul says it is the work of the Spirit that gets us to that point, that, that grows us. Until we get a right view of Jesus, we will never have a right view of how to be like him. Because it is beyond our ability. And the clearer we see him, the clearer we know that. And yet, according to scripture, it's a reality we can experience. If we walk in obedience to his word by the power of the spirit, we are told that we will be transformed into the image of our Lord. Right? That's the power of what we see here. The disciples' encounter ends with these words. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. How powerful are those last two words? Jesus only. That's the title of our sermon today because that is the point of all this. It is Jesus only. Not Jesus in the law, not Jesus in the prophets. It's Jesus only. The only son of God, the only one worthy and capable of redeeming mankind by his sacrifice, it is Jesus only. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, right, the great prince of preachers, once preached a sermon, a 45 to an hour long sermon, using those two words as his text, Jesus only. He's a much better preacher than I am because I needed more words than that. But this is the question he asks as you read that sermon. The question he asks is what would have happened if the outcome had been different? What if the disciples had come down with Moses only? What if the disciples had come down with Elijah only? What if the disciples had come down with Moses, Jesus, and Elijah? And as he works through that beautiful sermon, he comes to the point where he helps us see that there is no better experience, no better outcome, no better blessing than to be with Jesus only. As I close, I want to take you back to the beginning. People can know a lot about you. The closer they are, the more they know. But no one can truly know what is in your heart but you. No one can know what you believe about this Jesus, the Son of God. Have you come to a place where you know that it is Jesus only? Not Jesus in your church attendance, not Jesus in your uh, membership, not Jesus in your Bible reading plan, not Jesus in your good works. Like it is Jesus only. The Bible says he is the only name by which we can be saved because he is the only, he says we are, he's the only name by which we must be saved because listen, he's the only name by which we can be saved. Amen? And so have you come to the place where you know that it is Jesus only that can save you, redeem you, and reconcile you to God as the Apostle Paul says?